0: From a studio high above the clouds of the Okanagan Valley, this is the Cannabis Podcast. Exploring the world of Canadian cannabis culture, one toke at a time. Now, here's your host and bud thunder, Gary Johnston. Welcome back to the Cannabis Podcast. If this happens to be your first time here, well, an especially warm welcome for you. 30 to 40 minutes of cannabis information is ahead of you. Let me remind you before we get started. This program is intended only for those 19 or older in your jurisdiction and is intended purely for entertainment and perhaps educational purposes. You should always consume your cannabis responsibly. This episode, I talked with Bo Kilmer. He's the Macaulay Chair in Drug Policy Innovation with the RAND Corporation, and we get his thoughts on the current state of cannabis legalization and some options for policy change. Health Canada has noticed... The appearance of packages of 50, 100, and 200 milligrams of THC. We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. The limit's supposed to be 10 milligrams per package. They're not too happy. There's been some more criticism for flavored cannabis and its appeal for kids. I look at dialing in your perfect terpene profile. On Cultivar Corner, it's back to the Kootenays and Sweetgrass Cannabis for a limited drop crushed velvet. Mmm, sounds delicious, doesn't it? And another listener shares his cannabis story. All of that and more on episode 116 of the Cannabis Podcast. And before we get into the meat of things, let me, as usual, thank you for being a listener and thank my supporters who have been supporting me, Jordana, Kevin, and Rob. And you know what? We're also going to hear Rob's cannabis story a little bit later. I had another note from Gord. Thank you for the contact, Gord. And Gord sent me a a note about something happening in Saskatchewan with a rewrite of their cannabis rules that I was not aware of that currently retailers are required to ask for proof of age from all purchasers, which I guess has created a, a real angry situation when old dudes walk into the store and they have to supply some ID. The amendment apparently will now require all Saskatchewan cannabis retailers to only ask for proof of age when a purchaser appears to be under the age of 25. Seems like that makes a lot more sense. Thanks for the info on that, Gord. Also, a shout out to Daniel. He contacted me through LinkedIn, just starting his traversing of the cannabis industry. Good luck on your journeys, Daniel. Thanks for being along for the ride here on the podcast. Back in episode 104, I asked the question, what is your cannabis story? Because I was convinced then and I'm convinced now that there is a variety of different stories of how we all came to cannabis. Some may be like me. Initially, recreational cannabis use was what brought me here and has kept me here and and a discovery of the medical side of things later in life. For others, as you're about to hear, it's the medical issues that initially drove them to cannabis. And luckily, they were able to find some relief. With your cannabis stories, we've heard from Grace. We've heard from Stephen Tony, Jim, and today we're gonna hear from Rob. And you've actually heard me talk about Rob a lot. Rob has bought me a bunch of doobies, he's been a supporter, and he's now sharing his cannabis story. Hi Gary, I wanted to share my cannabis story. First, I'd like to say I'm a proud husband and father. I've been married for over 20 years and have two wonderful kids. I'm a veteran. Having served with the 1st Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, and the RCMP. I also did a UN peacekeeping tour in Croatia in 1994. It was during my time in the RCMP that I ran into mental health problems. After serving two years in a busy detachment, I suffered a severe mental breakdown. I started talk therapy and antidepressants. My diagnosis is PTSD. For many years I suffered from severe depressive episodes, suicidal thoughts, hypervigilance, irritability, and sleep deprivation. I've been on many pharmaceutical medications over the years to help manage my symptoms. I was averaging three to four hours sleep a night and still had many depressive episodes. I started cannabis out of desperation six years ago. My first night, I slept seven hours. I started feeling better, happier with regular use. My family noticed the difference too. Dad was no longer the irritable mess that slept all the time. I was able to wean myself off my sleep medication, which I was struggling to do before cannabis. I'm currently reducing my antidepressants with an end goal to be completely off. I'm almost off an antidepressant I started 18 years ago. Cannabis changed my life for the better. Thank you for the podcast that has helped guide me on my cannabis journey. Sincerely, Rob Matheson. Kudos to you, Rob. Thank you for the courage to share your story, and especially thank you for the courage to share your name. It's that courage that's going to help change the stigma that is still out there over cannabis. More people have to understand that for many people, cannabis can be a revolutionary medicine, and I'm really pleased to hear that you are having such tremendous effect from cannabis. Rob, I'm so glad you're here and along for the ride. From the Cannabis Infused Studio in the Clouds, this is the Cannabis Podcast. When I saw this story pop up, I have to say I wasn't too terribly surprised. I've mentioned it a few times over the last few episodes, where we have now seen twisting the legislation and looking for loopholes. We've talked about it before, where 10 milligrams is supposed to be the maximum THC in any package of edibles that a cannabis store in the legal world can sell. But... We've had lozenges. We've had hard candies introduced. We've even had, for all intents and purposes, what are gummies, but they're not calling them gummies because they have now increased their THC to 10 milligrams per piece and 5, 10, 20 pieces per package. Health Canada apparently has been watching. This is a story from mjbizdaily.com written by Matt Lamers. Health Canada has begun asking some federally licensed marijuana companies to stop selling certain ingestible cannabis products the regulatory agency says, are incorrectly classified and labeled as extracts rather than edibles. The move could cost cannabis businesses millions of dollars, Canadian industry sources say, because the products in question, including some lozenges and chewable extracts, are increasingly popular among consumers. Executives are puzzled over Health Canada's timing, especially since some of the products in question have been on the market for years. The apparent crackdown also comes at a sensitive time for the Canadian marijuana industry, as most publicly traded cannabis producers are still losing money. From a packaging perspective, the distinction is important because any cannabis product classified as an extract has 100 times more allowable THC per package than a product classified as an edible, making it more appealing to certain consumers. One letter sent to a licensee by Health Canada obtained by Daily request the company to halt the sale of the flagged products. The letter is from Annika Stella Chase, Acting Director General of the Compliance Directorate in Health Canada's Controlled Substances and Cannabis branch. Despite blowing the whistle, Health Canada stopped short of ordering the company to recall the products, which had been on store shelves and available to consumers. It isn't known if Health Canada sent a non-compliance letter to every company selling the products now under federal scrutiny or only select producers. Health Canada did not immediately answer MJBizDaily queries for comment. In the letter seen by MJBizDaily, the agency said that, Upon further review of the products in question, Health Canada has assessed that this product is edible cannabis, and consequently it contains a quantity of THC that exceeds the allowable limit of 10 milligrams per immediate container. The letter goes on to define extract, edible, and food. Health Canada has determined that the products in question are consumed in the same manner as food and therefore fit the definition of edible cannabis, the Health Canada letter notes. Unlike extracts, cannabis products classified as edibles are limited to 10 milligrams of THC per package. Shane Morris, founder of Ottawa-based Morris & Associates Consulting, noted that Schedule 4 of the Cannabis Act identifies the classifications of marijuana that can be sold. For all cannabis extracts, The THC quantity must not exceed 1,000 milligrams per media container. This is 100 times more THC per pack than what is permitted in an edible class of cannabis product, he said. All new cannabis products in Canada must follow the government's so-called Notice of New Cannabis Product, or NNCP, process, which requires licensed producers to notify Health Canada months in advance of new products. In fact, some ingestible extracts that contain significant amounts of THC had been on the market for years. In August 2021, New Brunswick-based cannabis producer Organigram launched its JOLTS ingestible extracts, saying at the time it was Canada's first flavored high-potency THC lozenge containing a total of 100 milligrams per pack. Organigram did not immediately respond to requests for comment from MJ Biz Daily, and it's unknown if the company received a warning letter from Health Canada. If all ingestible extracts and lozenges are pulled from the Canadian market— The industry could lose out on tens of millions of dollars in sales per year, industry sources say. Morris estimates that in December 2022 alone, the Ontario Cannabis Store sold roughly $942,000 worth of the loophole ingestible extracts in wholesale orders and via its online consumer store. Assuming Ontario sells approximately 40% of all cannabis in Canada, then on an annual basis this would mean the retail value of these products would be approximately $33 million per annum in the recreational market, not including medical or Quebec where these new products are not sold, he said via email. Morris previously worked in operations at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and the Public Health Agency of Canada. Sherry Boudram, CEO and co-founder of Toronto-based regulatory consulting firm Can Delta, said licensees agree that reducing the public health risks associated with cannabis products should always be a priority. Boudram also said that cannabis companies found creative ways to manufacture and market products to compete with the illicit market. For Health Canada to suddenly bring down the hammer on how these products are being classified, especially three years after cannabis 2.0 products became legal, will undoubtedly cause business losses during a time when cannabis companies are already struggling, she said. This could ultimately lead consumers to turn to the illicit market, as legal, regulated, and taxpaying companies go insolvent because of Health Canada's inconsistent regulatory compliance interpretation and enforcement actions or inactions. Interesting story from Matt Lamers and mjbizdaily.com. And I have to agree with the sentiments at the conclusion of that story. We're finding consumers are really liking these higher dosage THC packages because they're closer to what they want to see in an edible. But Health Canada has not figured that out. I'm really hoping they readjust that limit as they review the Cannabis Act over the next 18 months. That is one that definitely has to change. Our conversation today is with Bo Kilmer. Beau has literally written the book on marijuana legalization and has dedicated his life to non-objective research with a focus on social equity, with special emphasis on crime control, substance use, illegal markets, and public policy. Bo Kilmer is the Macaulay Chair in Drug Policy Innovation, Director of the RAND Drug Policy Research Center, and a Senior Policy Researcher at the RAND Corporation. And we pick up the conversation just after I've welcomed him to the Cannabis Podcast and asked about his history of doing cannabis research.
1: Yes. Uh, if you would have told me 12, 13 years ago that I would have spent, you know, maybe spending this much time working on cannabis uh, policy, uh, I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, being here in California, you know, right around 2009, 2010, you know, the conversation started to change. Yeah. You know, I mean, people have been debating legalization in their at dinner parties and in dorm rooms for decades. But, you know, it was at that time that, uh uh, some legislation had been introduced, uh, and there were discussions about there being a ballot initiative here in California. And, you know, and being here, I kind of saw both sides of the issue, kind of talking past one another, using really big numbers that, would, that made it hard to have you know, kind of productive conversations about this. So with some colleagues, we ended up doing some work trying to help people understand, hey, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and here's some of the things you need to think about very much more of kind of a theoretical piece. Uh, but then um, you know, after Washington state legalized in 2012, that's when I, you know, along with some colleagues, really started getting more involved in helping jurisdictions kind of think through all of the choices that they confront. You know, as you know, you know this, this isn't uh, a binary decision, right? There are a number of choices you, uh, you face that will ultimately influence how this plays out for uh, public health and public safety and social equity. And so, yeah, So I've been, um, in, you know, I've you know, been fortunate enough to work with a number of states and other countries over the past 10 years, kind of helping them think through these issues.
0: So I'm curious, Bo, uh, in terms of your background, are you a consumer of cannabis?
1: You know, Gary, I don't really answer that question. Let me tell you why. Okay. Um, you know, if I were to answer uh, no to that, you know, some people would then say, well, you know, he has no credibility. He doesn't know what he's talking about. If I say yes, you know, I'm admitting to a federal offense and there are other implications. So I would prefer not to answer that.
0: Okay. And that's perfectly acceptable. (laughs) I totally understand (laughs) your rationale behind that as well. (laughs) One of the places where you had some involvement in the Canadian cannabis world was you presented before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health and the Standing Committee on Social Affairs, Science and Technology, Senate of Canada. That must have been an interesting experience.
1: Oh, yeah, that was, what was that, 2000, yeah, it must have been 2017, so gosh, more than yeah, five Yeah, it was prior to
0: legalization. Ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, I, I believe that was my first time to, uh, to Ottawa, and okay. uh, no, I, I really enjoyed it, and I have to tell you, I was just, I forget which committee it was, um, but one of them, I was particularly impressed by how, uh, you know, how much research, you know, the legislators had done you know, they were asking me questions about, you know, specific, You know, when you wrote this article and you said this, and, you know, they were very specific questions, and, you know, I just found that really refreshing. Um, it seemed like a group that was really trying to, you know, cut through everything and really trying to get a sense of, okay, what do we know, what don't we know. Yeah, I remember spending, um, if I recall, uh, I remember spending a fair amount of time talking about the importance of prices, and... Yeah, because one of the things that uh, you know, even in our, in our very early work on this, is you know we we realize that you know with legalization, um, so many of the out, so many of the outcomes that get discussed in these debates are really going to be influenced by what happens to the retail price. Now, obviously, there's consumption, but also the size of the illegal market, uh, what happens with respect to tax revenues. And then also, you know, the profitability of businesses, and you know, and that obviously has implications for social equity. And uh, I remember when we came out with this first report, you know, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and we talked about how, you know, if you don't do, you know, there's a good chance that when you legalize, you know, you're definitely going to reduce the production and distribution costs. Whether or not you see that at the retail level depends on, kind of, you know, d- depends on. Um, Um, you know, whether or not you're allowing for-profit companies to really, you know, how involved they are. But we talked about the possibility of for there being these really large price drops and that this could have implications for a lot of these different outcomes. I got to tell you, Gary, I remember at the time, because no one was really talking much about price. And um, yeah, I remember hearing people saying, you know, what do those RAN nerds know about growing cannabis, right? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and uh, you know, we had talked to a lot of people in the business, and you know, and those that you know, obviously that farm other products, and uh, I mean, we just kind of saw the writing on the wall. And in fact, I mean, that's what we're seeing happen here, you know, especially in the uh, jurisdictions that uh, implemented early. Um, we're seeing large price drops, and you know, for example, in Oregon. I think the price, the price for, uh, or the median price for a gram of flour, you know, late 2016, may have been going for somewhere around ten U.S. dollars. And the most recent figures I've seen now put it closer to four. And uh, and then also, you know, Michigan saw about a 40% drop over the course of a year. Now, but the thing you have to keep in mind is, like, you know, a number of states have done this. And, you know, both Oregon and Michigan, you know, their approach was to give out a lot of licenses. And you know it, it, that it, that isn't necessarily the case in all of the states that have legalized. And you know, and if you give out a lot of licenses on the production side as well as the retail side, there's just going to be more competition. So it's not surprising to see these retail prices dropping. It just—I mean—it's already hard for the small businesses, your small entrepreneurs, to compete. It's just going to get harder. Now,
0: that's one of the factors in the Canadian market where the. Inability of those small producers to be able to compete has a lot to do with the excise tax that was applied. And I know you had some discussion in some of your presentation about what are they going to do in terms of taxes. Can you give me some of your perspective on on what you think are are appropriate, or perhaps the the varying ways that that cannabis could be taxed effectively?
1: Well, there there are two separate questions there. There's the kind of what what are the goals for legalization and regulation, and then there are separate questions about what are the different ways that you would actually tax the products. I mean, and this is important to keep in mind because people have very different goals or, different, you know, or you know, different values. If your main goal for legalization is to reduce the size of the illegal market as quickly as possible, you know, you're going to give out a ton of licenses, you wouldn't put a lot of regulations out there, you'd have really low taxes. You know, and the goal would be to really drive down those prices, and, you know, so it gets to the point where the illegal uh, producers or, you know, suppliers can't really compete. On the other hand, you know, from a public health perspective, there are some people that may still want to legalize, but they're fine if it takes longer for there to be a large reduction in the size of the illegal market because they want to have a lot of regulations. They would prefer to kind of keep those prices up. So, kind of depending on what your what your goals are, you know, that can influence, you know, kind of you know what, what your what the uh, what your preference would be with respect to uh, to taxation. And in terms of how to best tax cannabis, um, you know, I, I I would say that right now we still don't know <laughs> the best way. Uh, yeah, to, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, but I, I would say there seems to be this emerging consensus that taxing just purely as a function of the price probably isn't the best approach. These are what you would call these ad valorem taxes. And, and the thing with those is, you know, if your tax is a function of the, you know, of the price and your prices go down, well, so will your tax revenue, unless you see a large increase in consumption. And in fact, I believe that 2022 was the first year that uh, the state of Colorado actually saw a reduction in its uh, cannabis uh, tax revenues for the uh, for the entire state, and it's believed because you know um, because the prices have gone down so much, and so you know there are other ways to tax. You know Alaska tax. You know I think they've got a weight-based tax, um, maybe fifty dollars an ounce. Um, the other option that's getting more attention is taxing as a function of potency. And there are a lot of different ways, even within that, there are a lot of different ways you could do it. But, um, you know, most of the discussion right now, it would be taxing as a function of the Delta 9 THC content. What we're seeing now is um, people implementing kind of much more complex THC taxes. And so both in New York and Connecticut, and the stores just started to open up in New York, and I believe they're going to open up, if they haven't already, they're going to be opening up in Connecticut soon. There, they've actually taxed cannabis not only as a function of the THC content, but the tax rate actually depends on the product. So, there's a different THC tax rate for flour versus edibles versus concentrates. So, it's going to be fascinating to kind of see how that plays out. But, you know, there are a couple different reasons, you know, potential advantages for a THC tax. Um, Obviously, it's not as sensitive to those price drops and uh, that you see with the ad valorem taxes. But also, if you're in a place, and you know, in the way this is, you know, played out in most of the United States is, you know, there've really been there are no limits on products uh, in terms of what products are sold, uh, in terms of potency limit, you know, THC limits. I mean, the one exception is with edibles, right? There'll typically be a limit on the total amount of THC in a package, and in some places, even you know, a piece of candy within that candy bar can only have five to ten milligrams, you know, kind of depending on where you're at. But when you talk about flour and you talk about the concentrates, um, there's no limit. And so th- that is an approach. And, um, you know, but, you know, so if you wanted to limit potency, you could you know, limit those products. The other thing you could do is you could set up a, a, a progressive THC tax you know, with higher rates at higher levels of THC, which you could, in theory, then use to nudge people towards some of the lower potency products
0: interesting and i saw that was that was some of the conversation that you had in in your presentation before the standing committee mm-hmm. where the intent was to keep consumers using lower potency cannabis yeah what i'm curious about bo is is the reality of what's happened in the 4 years since legalization has happened in canada When that happened on October 17, 2018, the typical THC rate in most of the cannabis flower was somewhere between 15 and 20%. Now, here we are four years later, and in Canada, the typical THC range is somewhere between 26 and 36%. Wow. That's an astounding increase in in a matter of four years and, and if it was based, the tax was based on the potency of the THC, we would have a just a, well, of course, we do have a pretty crazy arrangement right now.
1: Yeah. And I think these uh, these models that are being implemented in New York and Connecticut are a bit more complicated in terms of, you know, with the different tax rates by product. So we'll, it'll, it'll be fascinating to kind of see how this plays out. And But, you know, I've talked about some of the potential advantages. And, and this is how, at least in the United States at the federal level, it's kind of similar to how we tax alcohol. You know, we've got different rates for beer and wine, you know, Compared to spirits, at some point you could also think about getting more complicated and taxing as a function of THC to CBD ratios.
0: As you may kind of made reference to, uh, our biggest issue in terms of the dosage here in Canada, Bo, is the edibles, where it's an artificial 10 milligram limit of THC per package. Anybody who has spent any time in the you know gray market, black market, the pre-legalization market was used to edibles in in quite higher doses, sometimes 50, sometimes 100 milligrams. So do you think that there's still a way for the governments in in their approach to be reviewing, which is supposed to be happening in Canada now, they're supposed to be doing a full review. Do you see that that's something that's both here and in the States where that's going to be adjusted and and maybe come up with some national standards? Well,
1: Gary, just... To make sure I heard you correctly, you said that the limit on any package is 10 milligrams of THC?
0: Yes, 10 milligrams THC. And interestingly enough, we've now uh, found a couple of companies that have found their way around the legislation. (laughs) And and they're putting out a package which is not being classified as an edible, but is more being classified as a capsule. And they're now managing to put up to 100 milligrams in a couple of those packages. But the base for edibles, 10 milligrams per package of THC. That's the max you can
1: put. Interesting. Yeah, as I said... I know that there's some variation here, you know, across the U.S. states that have legalized. But uh, you do hear a lot about, you know, the limit being 100 milligrams. But then, you know, sometimes, as I said, if it's a candy bar or something, you know, each piece, you know, in some cases, I think it may have to be individually wrapped. You know, we've been talking about North America. Some of the models we're seeing in other places are really interesting. You know, I, I spent some time in Uruguay before they legalize and after. And there it's just very different, you know, if you're 18 and older or 18, yeah, 18 and older and you wanna get access to legal cannabis, well, the first thing you need to do is you actually have to register with the government. Oh, okay. and, 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 and when you do that, you then have to choose between one of three supply routes. You can either register to grow it at home, you could register to join a, a cannabis collective or a co-op, or you can choose to purchase it at a pharmacy. And even if you do that, um, you know, there are limits on how much you can buy, I think per week, I, I think it works out to about, they limit you to 40 grams a month, uh, I think 10 grams a week, roughly. And also, it's just there very few, you know, there's no advertising, you know, very, you know, a very small kind of slate of products, and um, and they limit the THC to 9%.
0: Nine percent. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, wow. you know, when I when I talk to anyone, in, you know, in the U.S. or Canada, I'm like, what are you talking about? But you have to kind of put this in perspective. Before legalization, most of the cannabis that was consumed in Uruguay was actually coming from Paraguay, and it was and I, I wouldn't necessarily call it ditchweed, but it was very low quality. And so when they initially, I, I believe that they the initially Like the THC was the limit was it was somewhere like two, three percent. And then obviously they kinda raised it. Um, but that said, that's for what's sold in the stores. But you got people that are growing at home or part of the co ops and I've seen some research suggesting that what they're producing is actually higher than the nine percent. So I would expect it would be. Yeah, but it's just it's a very kind of, you know, very different model kinda from what we see, you know, here in North America.
0: Well, you have opened my eyes to some different methodologies of distributing cannabis around the world and some different policies that are being applied. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Paul. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
1: You too, Gary. Take care. THC, CBD, terpene profiles, what's in me? Oh, please explain to me. Go to corner. Go to
0: Corner, please explain this stuff to me. On Cultivar Corner today, we're making our third trip back to the Kootenays. Now, I don't know whether <laughs> my love of this particular cannabis brand is because I am originally from the Kootenays, or whether I really just like their good weed. <laughs> we're talking about Sweetgrass Cannabis. Sweetgrass is a fully organic cannabis grower. FVOPA Organic Certified. They grow in the Weimar area of BC, just a little south of Nelson. And that's the area that I grew up in. So it's kind of cool. And, and of course, the Nelson area was known for all of its legacy cannabis for years and years. That was the place to go if you wanted some good weed. Still is apparently, because now we're doing sweet grass. And this is a new and a limited edition that there's not a lot of detail on. Uh, In fact, if you go to the Sweetgrass website, which I have included in the show notes, you'll see there's not even a reference to this particular cultivar because it is a limited edition, but I have found some details on it. What are we talking about? We are talking crushed velvet hybrid. And I have to say, (laughs) there were a number who opened the bag and we kind of shared it. And to a person, it was, oh, my, 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 that is such an abundance. Abundant fragrance that comes out of that jar. Absolutely astounding. And it's, as I've said before, with some of the strains and some of the cultivars we've talked about. When it has that certain mix of terpenes that just hits your body, you go, oh, I got to smoke some of that. In fact, I like this one so much, I finished off the first bag and I immediately went and grabbed another one. And that's what we're dealing with here on Cultivar Corner. Let me tell you about the buds. Uh, Bright green. Really nice bright green, lots of orange hairs, lots of orange pistils. And bring out the jeweler's loop and take a pee. Oh, my, my, are they ever frosty. <laughs> really, really nice. Just drop that in a fairly big bud. I pulled out a serpent about f- probably five, six buds. They made up the three and a half grams. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when you crush these guys up, that aroma just comes spilling through. Absolutely astounding at how good this particular weed smells. Now, what are the terpenes in it? And here's some kudos to Sweetgrass. We've done two of their other cultivars. We've done their Mint Chocolate Chip, and we have done their Mendo Stomper. And when we started off, I think one of the criticisms I threw out was that at that point, their labels didn't have any of the terpene information. Well, they listened. I'm assuming it was me they listened to. <laughs> maybe there were others as well the terpenes are here and really nice so the THC on this guy is 32.6 percent the total terpenes at 3.2 percent and they are one percent farnesine and there is that sweet candy smell Mm. and that's the best description I can give you it just smells like a bag of candy 32.6% 32.6% THC, 1% farnesine, 0.6% limonene, 4% transcaryophyllene, and 0.3% beta-myrcene. And what was this made up of? Well, let's give you the details. The strains made behind Krushka Velvet, Orange Velvet Underground, and Endgame Number no. 5 from Ethos. And I have to say, the, the genetics they're dealing with at Sweetgrass, really producing some fine, fine weed. So let's put it to the test. We have the crushed velvets from Sweetgrass Cannabis ready to go in the Crafty Plus, And let's take our first hit from there. <laughs> mm. I've talked about it before. The amount of flavor when you use a vaporizer like the Crafty Plus or a Volcano or whatever you're using, <laughs> it just really lets you taste your weed. Now, I know there's the occasional time when I'm smoking in the bong and I will get a taste of the weed, but it's never as strong as it is through a vaporizer. Now, this crushed velvet is listed as a hybrid, which many of the things the cultivars from Sweetgrass are, which would be very cool because here we are, my first day off the week. And a nice hybrid, kind of smack dab, give me some of that euphoric feeling, but a little bit of body relaxation wouldn't be bad as well. Get me, get me some stuff done today. Mmm, just a delightful taste in that. Mmm, and let's give you the description from others, so that it's not just me that's giving you this. Crushed Velvet, the latest cultivar from the LSO beds of Sweetgrass Cannabis, yields well-formed, medium-sized buds the complex fragrance instantly hits. And boy, is that right? It instantly hits with sweet and sour notes of citrus rind, cherry, and cranberry mixed with an ever-so-slight undertone of a savory chicken dinner served with a side of waffles topped with a stanky sprinkling of blue cheese. <laughs> and surprisingly enough, each of those is in there. <laughs> and in fact, one of the people that I was sharing the jar with when I first opened it up said, oh, there's a lot of cheese in that one. Something reminiscent of Tropicana cookies and Rainbow Driver. Uh, this strain's aroma qualities are, and uh, what are we going to feel with this guy? Predominantly, we're going to be calm, happy, relaxed, and a little bit energetic. And now let's light the joint and see what that does. Mm, nice and smooth in the joint. Not those same taste elements that we got out of the crafty, but. Really nice. Now if you're not familiar with Sweetgrass Cannabis, they are a community of like-minded folk who enjoy the finer things in life. Their interest in the art of growing cannabis runs deep and they've been looking forward to delivering their craft flower to the upper shelves in the Canadian marketplace. They're licensed by Health Canada, certified by the Fraser Valley Organic Producers Association to produce small-batch organic living soil cannabis. At this time they have four select cultivars growing in the facility. And they're currently developing several other registered phenotypes for release in the near future. And I hear one of those that's coming is a Mandarin cookie, an exclusive genetic to Sweetgrass. That'll be cool when that comes out. Now, this is rather odd sequencing. Once more, because my studio happens to be right next to our furnace. (laughs) As soon as I finished that last statement, the furnace came on and I continued to smoke the joint. I continued to smoke the vaporizer. And it was probably about a five, six minute period that the furnace was running. And I got to tell you, it worked. (laughs) Uh, Over that five minute period, while I kept smoking both the joint and the vaporizer, (laughs) that may also be an indication that I am uh, getting, or or that I am kind of (laughs) high. Whenever my communication stops to be clear, Uh, That's always an issue. So really happy with the effect. Let me tell you a little bit more about the buds. Uh, Just some really nice little buds. And I took them out just to see if there is some squishiness. And and there is some stickiness to them. Stick that on my finger and raise that up. Oh, yeah. Nice sticky weed. Sticky, stinky, dank weed. It's what so many people are looking for. And I got to say the folks at Sweetgrass have done it once again. Excellent job really happy with this once again our thc is sitting at 32.6 the terpenes at 3.2 predominantly farnesine limonene trans and beta-myrcene and i think that is becoming my new favorite terpene profile a little farnesine for some sweetness some of that pepper to get a bit of spiciness the limonene for some energy and the beta-myrcene because it just kind of gives us that deep relaxed feeling all swung together in one cultivar and doing pretty darn good in my endocannabinoid system at the time. Did we hit the effects? Calm? Yeah. Happy? Absolutely. Relaxed? Yeah, that's that beta myrcene I think. And energetic from limonene, I'm ready to go. <laughs> it seems a bit contrary there, the relaxed and the energetic side by side. But as you know, if you're a cannabis smoker, those two can actually coexist and change from one minute to the next. I'm really happy with this one. This is a limited edition. They only dropped a few cases, and I'm so glad that I got some of that case and a couple of the eights. Organic crushed velvet from Sweetgrass Cannabis. They're growing some fine weed in the Kootenays. Sharing stories about good weed while trying good weed. This is the Cannabis Podcast. Our next story comes from medicallycorrect.com, written by Danielle DeFrances. Ever wonder why you feel vastly different from various strains of cannabis, even if their THC and CBD content are the same? It's the terpenes. As science continues to unveil the mysteries of cannabinoids, terpenes are gaining a lot of attention and for good reason. Since the early days of the cannabis industry, strains were primarily classified as indica, sativa, or hybrid. Labeled as such due to the common experiences of a body high, head high, or somewhere in between, respectively, Yet science is finding these classifications to be quite rudimentary. And as terpenes are being analyzed further, what's been revealed is that the role terpenes play within cannabis drive the experiences we humans receive and that they're critical components to the medicinal effects of cannabis. Short refresher. Terpenes are the oily compounds within the cannabis trichomes that give the plant its smell and taste similar to essential oils. Terpenoids is often used interchangeably with terpenes, The main difference being that terpenes are hydrocarbons, carbon and hydrogen only, while terpenoids have been denatured by oxidation, chemical modification or drying, and curing the flowers. How would you like to be able to choose your ideal strain by identifying which terpenes are best for you? At this point in time, somewhere between 120 to 200 terpenes have been discovered within the cannabis plant. And of these, a small handful have been researched. The findings are somewhat limited so far, but as research continues, terpenes will become an even more precise way to identify your ideal strain. For now, there's enough information to help guide you. And once you learn about the known potential therapeutic properties of each of the most common terpenes found in cannabis, you can start choosing strains based on how you'd like to feel. Step one. So how do you want to feel? Determine this first so you know what you're looking for as you learn about the most common terps. Here are some questions to help get you started. Are you looking to mellow out, yet stay clear-headed and productive? Are you looking to relax your mind and body so you can fall asleep more easily? Are you looking for inflammation reduction and pain relief? Are you looking for something to energize and uplift your spirits? Are you looking to reduce anxiety? Are you looking for creative enhancement and focus? A great place to start is reviewing a chart of the most common terpenes and where they reside in the spectrum of calming to energizing. You can also perform an internet search of cannabis terpenes and gather information from various sources. And I, of course, will have a link to this story on the show page, where you can check out the chart that I'm looking at yourself. And basically, the calming to energizing has Myrcene on the farthest calming point, moving through pinene, cariofilene, limonene, and ending up with the most energizing at terpenoline. Step three, look at each terpene and learn about its known potential therapeutic benefits. Step four, take note of the terpenes you'd like your cannabis to contain and then search for strains would contain these terpenes. Also, identify terpenes you want to stay away from and keep a note of these in your wallet or commit them to memory. And as an aside, this is the biggest factor that I think you need to pay attention to. It's the things you don't want in your body that are, have most of impact and we really need to identify those. Now, they list some common abundant terpenes in particular strains. Super lemon haze, The most abundant terpene, terpinoline and osamine, along with some caryophylline. And sour diesel, most abundant, caryophylline and limonene, and then myrcene. Blue Dream, most dominant, myrcene, pinene, followed by caryophylline. OG Kush, caryophyllene, limonene and myrcene, the most dominant being linalool and humulene, along with some pinene. Let's say you're looking for help with relieving pain and inflammation while reducing anxiety. Caryophyllene reduces inflammation, which lessens pain, and limonene helps reduce anxiety. So, from the list we just covered, OG Kush and Sour Diesel would be the two top strains for you to try. A more experiential way to discover the best terpenes for you. This can be super fun. Simply head to your favorite dispensary and purchase a gram of each of the following. Super Lemon Haze, Sour Diesel, Blue Dream, Golden Goats, and OG Kush. Or you can choose your own lineup. Next, grab some index cards and smoke each one on separate days or with enough time in between so they don't influence one another, such as one in the morning and one in the evening. For each strain, after 10 or 15 minutes after consumption, take this super short quiz and keep your answers to refer to later. Now that you're high, what are the top three things you feel like doing? Which would you rather be, comfy at home or out socializing? Do you enjoy this strain? Yes or no? Once you have your answers for each strain, list out the terpenes in each. You can refer to the strain examples, main terpene profiles that we refer to, or you can choose other strains and consult a resource such as Leafly.com. See what trends you find within strains you enjoy and the ones you don't, and then learn more about what those terpenes are so that they can help guide your future buying decisions. And that's a great advice and some great information in that article. And as I say, I will have the link on the show page. You can check it out for yourself at medicallycorrect.com and maybe we can help you find your perfect terpene profile. Once more, let me thank you for being a listener of the Cannabis Podcast. I truly appreciate the fact that you were here. And if you would like to help out further, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Cannabis Podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can buy me a doobie. And there's also now a Patreon page. If you feel so inclined, you can check that out. The link is back at CannabisPodcast.com. If you ever have a comment on anything you hear in the Cannabis Podcast, please send a note to info at CannabisPodcast.com. I love hearing from you each and every time. That's it for episode 116 of the Cannabis Podcast. From the Cannabis Infused Studio, high above the Okanagan Valley, this was the Cannabis Podcast.